Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Well, good morning. I am up. Now I know how Moses felt at the mountain. Isaiah chapter 40 3 and 5 is our call to worship, so I'm going to invite you to come on in, join with us. We do have the heat on, and so you should be able to come on in and stamp out the cold in the old toes and, and feet. That's usually where I feel mine, and I'm so thankful that you're here, and I'd like to start off by reading our call to worship found in Isaiah chapter 40, if I can just have your attention as we read the Word of God. As the prophet writes, a voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Amen. Preparing our hearts for the time of Advent as we celebrate that. This is the second Sunday of Advent. And again, Advent is a word that means coming or visiting. And in the Christian season of Advent, we pray for the Advent of Christ at Christmas. By lighting a candle each week of Advent, we help ourselves get ready for the birth of Christ. The candles have a different meaning and each is based on the Bible. And these meanings help us understand how special the birth of Jesus is is for us, and I'm going to ask Dario if he would just come on up at this time, is he'll light the second candle that called the candle of preparation, reminding Christians that we're to get ready to receive God. Come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, comes the lament. Emmanuel shall come to thee. Father, we thank you for the fact that Christ has finally come. Lord, we we look past to the first advent. Lord, you came and you secured our redemption. And Father, as those who profess you this morning, I pray that you help us to look forward to you coming again. Let us prepare our hearts, Lord, as you're preparing rooms for us. Lord, I pray that you would just join with us this morning as we just sing your praises, as we pray, as we lift up our hearts to you. And Lord, as we receive your word, Lord, may you be glorified in all that we do. Our scripture reading this morning is found in Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 19. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Join with me. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, 
so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we have both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And thus saith the Lord. What a great word that he brings with us. You join with me as we just come before in the pastor's prayer. Dear Father, you are more precious than silver, more costly than gold. Your majesty fills the sky. Your goodness and kindness is never ceasing, and your mercies are ever new. Who can attain your knowledge and holiness? There's none that can fathom your thoughts towards us. Your love is ever abounding towards us. But our hearts betray the struggle we have inside. We are encumbered with competing desires. We desire to serve you, yet also desire to gratify ourselves outside of your good gifts. We struggle to do what's right, but we yearn to obey. We find excuses on why we cannot spend more time in prayer, and reading your word, and obeying your commands. Even in the midst of the struggle, your love is evident. We thank you for your forgiveness, your mercy, your love. Even when we turn our backs on your kindness, you come running and supplying with all that we need. We thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to empower us. We thank you for sending your Son to do what we could not. We come before you this morning to humbly ask for a larger measure of faith this morning. Hear our cry, O Lord, for mercy and for grace. Renew our hearts. Strengthen our resolve to fight sin, to love you with all of our heart and our strength and our mind, and to love our neighbors. Let us not quench the Spirit, but embrace His giftings, that we may edify and build each other up this morning. Prepare our hearts for your coming. May we set our affections on things above. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Don't we have a wonderful God? In Galatians, Paul is defending the gospel. Every generation, let me get this, you need to understand this. Every generation is called to protect and defend the gospel. And I say that because every generation will find the gospel under attack, maligned, and uh, distorted. Even today, to hold and To defend the gospel is important. The gospel has many counterfeits, and it's found its way in the many churches, pulpits, and the many hearts today. To do that, you and I must be knowledgeable about what the gospel is and its implications for our lives. The gospel is simply the story of God's work in reconciling all of creation to himself. The story encompasses the creation of a good world in which we were designed to represent God and to act as His mediators in His creation. Yet our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against Him, desiring to please themselves rather 
than God. This rebellion led to the fall that brought all of creation under the bondage of sin and led to the curse of death. Yet God, in His mercy, promised to send a Redeemer, one who would break the power of sin and death and bring us back to God. In the Gospel of John, we see clearly that God sent His Son Jesus to do just that, and through His perfect obedience in death and resurrection. The Bible reveals to us all who put their trust in Christ's work on their behalf will be redeemed and reconciled to God. And this story continues or finds its conclusion with the final chapter of consummation or recreation when Christ will come again and renew all things. This gospel is worthy of defense. We are commanded to hold the gospel dear, to share the gospel with others, and to live it out in our everyday life. The gospel is our hope and reason for living and serving. So far in Galatians, Paul has shared the many blessings we have received from God in that redemption, in that salvation. We have saw in chapter 1, God's election, God's choosing us to be His children. His calling, God drawing us to Himself. Regeneration, God making us alive by giving us a new nature, a new heart. Conversion, where God leads us to repent and to put our trust in Him. And as we saw in the last week or two, is adoption. God adopting us into His family. And we see that all of that salvation comes not by works, but by faith. In today's passage, Paul is going to share another great doctrine, as well as the ones we've already saw, in explaining how we are adopted into God's family and receive the blessings of Abraham. In Galatians chapter 3, if you turn there, in verse 26 to 29, but I'm actually going to start in verse 25, for that finishes out the verse 26. It says, as we saw last week, but now that faith has come, We are no longer under a guardian. That's what we saw. That's where we ended last week. Let's continue the sentence in verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through what? Faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Father, thank you for this passage. Scripture it is your word. It is God-inspired. It is there for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So, Father, may we embrace these difficult topics, and Lord, may we understand them through the illumination of your Spirit. Lord, may your spirit not be quenched, but may he find fertile soil. Lord, may you drive it deep and may it grow a hundredfold. Lord, as we receive it with gladness, and Lord, as we desire to live out the gospel in our lives, as we love, as we encourage, and as we build up, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of those that you brought into our sphere of influence. Father, we ask for your strength, and Father, may you be glorified in all that we say. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. 
in this third chapter of Galatians, now as we just kind of now bring it from, from the book to itself, from what we've seen, now let's go to chapter 3. We've seen Paul's defense of the gospel that both the Jew and the Gentiles are included in the salvation by grace through faith. That has been the argument. Paul has set forth three spiritual truths. This is a review. I know it's redundant, but it's important for us to understand and to build upon this. One, it was there's no need to be circumcised in order to belong to the family of God. The second truth that we saw is that the Spirit is the true sign of belonging to the family of God, and that faith was necessary to be part of the family of God. Now, the Judaizers, the ones that are, that are bringing in the counterfeit gospel that Paul has been defending against, has responded to Paul by saying that your message, Paul, is not true. Justification or being made right with God is not by faith alone. Yeah, maybe Abraham did that, but that's not enough. It's faith plus works. And that's a message that really, in reality, is being preached many times. One great denomination, the largest, that during Roman Catholicism, that is its gospel. It's faith plus the works. It's the sacraments. Many others do the same thing by putting all these things you must do to be saved. They say faith might have been good for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but now that that has been surpassed by the Mosaic law. In other words, they contend that the law changed the old way of salvation of faith alone. It's now by works of obedience to the commands of the law. Their belief is that from the time of the law on, from Mount Sinai on, God would justify people by faith plus their works, their obedience to the Mosaic law, to the civil and ceremonial, cleanly and dietary laws. However, Paul has anticipated that argument, that faith is not enough. And he did that by demonstrating, this is where we're getting closer to where we are today, he's been demonstrating that the promise, the Abraham covenant, is superior to the law, the Mosaic covenant. With faith, speaking of when Christ came, a new era of redemptive history began. And this faith speaks of our trust in Christ's work on our behalf. The only power over sin, the only power that reconciles us to God, the only power that enables us to become alive comes through Christ. Spiritual truth that we saw that Paul has been communicating in the passage that we saw last week is that the law was temporary and it served to reveal sin and to guide us to our need of a Savior. It had no saving ability within it. Now with that, as we look at Galatians chapter 3, 26-29, I want to make three observations for us this morning. And the first one is something that you and I as believers that we need to know. Things that we need to believe. And we see it in verse 25 again. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, as we read earlier, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. Here's what you need to know. Paul is using a human analogy of guardianship to demonstrate that the promise has been fulfilled, that the Redeemer has come, that the blessings of Abraham are now made available. As you can see, a young child, when he speaks of guardianship, 
A young child is under a guardianship waiting for his inheritance. He does not receive it yet, but he's under guardian. And Paul writes that the Mosaic Law served as that guardian, and it was intended to be temporary, for that child will eventually grow up into adult maturehood. And when he becomes an adult, he is now able and ready to receive and to receive those blessings, the inheritance that he would normally get. That's the human analogy, and we can understand that. In this case, the inheritance in the spiritual realm of the analogy is the blessings of Abraham. And Paul states that all believers are children of God only through faith, not through the observance of the Mosaic Law. You see, the law was not able to make anyone a true child of God. And that's important to understand. As Thomas Schreiner writes in his commentary, he writes that the law could not produce true sons of God, for the law only precipitated more sin. You see, there were two ways to become a child of Abraham and inherit the blessings. The first one was to be naturally born into the Hebrew family. And that was confirmed by circumcising the men and observance of the law. If a young man was born into a Hebrew family but was not circumcised, then he would be cut off from the blessings. So it was natural birth confirmed by circumcision and then observance of the law. The other way that if you were a Gentile, you could convert to the Hebrew faith, which you were also to be circumcised and then observe the law of Moses. And this has been the Jewish thinking for centuries. However, Paul now says that the only path to legitimacy to being a child of Abraham and receive the inheritance is through faith. Thomas Schreiner once again writes that the promise, the inheritance, is not obtained by keeping the Mosaic law, but actually by trusting in Christ Jesus. Now that does not mean the law was incomplete or a failure, but as we see in Romans chapter 9, if you look with me at verse 6, for Paul is anticipating that same question, when he says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, speaking of the law. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Interesting thought. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. I like that word, counted as offspring. So really, when the Jews, when they thought it would be right with God, then to them it meant be an offspring of Abraham, to be one of his descendants. And that was a natural way of thinking, but Paul is saying that is not true. You misread Scripture. The way that one becomes a true child of God is through faith. But how does that work? How does that work? How is one counted as an offspring. I mean, it's easy for me to tell you who my offspring is. I have Brandon, I have Jacob, and I have Emily. I have three children. I have three offspring. What is it that makes them my offspring? Well, they're Dawn and I children. We naturally gave birth to them. But I also could say, could I not, that if Dawn and I were to adopt a child, they too would be counted as one of my children. Though not naturally born, they would be adopted into my family legally. That's understandable, correct? 
So how then are you and I counted as an offspring of Abraham when you and I do not come from Abraham? That's very simple. Unless you're a Jew, a Hebrew today, or have that in your lineage, you cannot count yourself as a child of Abraham naturally. How does faith make us a child of God? Well, that's what Paul is sharing in this passage. He's sharing that there's a new way. There's a different way into the family of God rather than being born or converted into the Hebrew religion. One actually has access through Christ, through faith, and that's made possible by our union with Christ. Now, I want you to think of that because that's the doctrine that you and I are going to look at this morning is not only is there salvation and conversion and adoption, but there is a doctrine that just speaks throughout all eternity called our union with Christ. And so you and I are counted as children of Abraham, and we receive the blessing salvation because God counted us because of our union with Christ. For he writes, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God. Look at verse 27, or verse 26, excuse me. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. Wow, through faith. Here's the spiritual truth. You and I need to know, that you and I need to believe as professing Christians, is that we are made a part of God's family, and we receive the inheritance of blessings through faith by our union with Christ. And as I said before, this introduces the great doctrine of union with Christ and it relates to Christ as the offspring of Genesis 3.15, when we see the first promise of redemption. And Galatians 3.16, where we see the promise to Abraham, to his offspring, was to one, was to Christ. Christ, you see, is our substitute. He's our representative, and he's our redeemer. He accomplished all that God legally required. He had perfect obedience, and he was a pure sacrifice. That is the essence of the gospel. That's what Paul is defending. So you and I today, for us to receive the blessing of salvation, it is through faith, but it is by our union with Christ. So let me share some things about our union with Christ that you need to know. These are the things that we as Christians need to believe and know. John Calvin you might remember him, the great reformer, said that union with Christ has the highest degree of importance. You might have not heard that phrase before, but this is one of the great doctrines that you and I need to grab a hold of and hold on to. For it is the highest degree of importance if you and I are to understand justification correctly. How are we made right with God? It's not because of something you and I have done, but it's because of our union with Christ. John Murray, another pastor, wrote that union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It is not simply a phase of the application of redemption. It underlies every aspect of redemption. And that would go back to election, to calling, regeneration, conversion, and adoption. Anthony Hokima, a pastor, explains that the New Testament uses two interchangeable expressions to describe that union with Christ. And as you begin to read your scripture, you'll see it very clearly when it says that we, quote, we are in Christ or Christ in us. John 15, 
shares that quite frequently. He goes on to write that we should see the union with Christ extending all the way from eternity to eternity. You see, the roots of our union with Christ are in divine election. That's when you and I find our roots. That's when we were united with Christ. We see the basis of our union with Christ in the redemptive work in which he makes it clear that we belong to him. And the actual union with Christ is established with God's people in time. As you and I are here, we are called united in Christ as we live life together. Maybe this might be helpful in understanding. Wayne Grubman in the Systematic Theology writes, Throughout Christ's entire life on earth, from the time of his birth through the time of his ascension in heaven, God thought of us as being in Christ. That is, whatever Christ did as our representative, God counted it as being something that we did too. Believers were present in Christ only in God's thoughts, and God thought of us as going through everything that Christ went through because he was our representative. In other words, our first representative was Adam. And he was to maintain God's good kingdom, as I shared earlier, the first chapter of the gospel. But we saw that our first representative failed, and he failed miserably. He could not do what God commanded. And you have to see that the reason that you and I have sin in our lives is not necessarily because of what you and I did, but because of what Adam did. Because Adam sinned, God has counted all of us as sinners also. We have inherited what Adam did. And so in the same way, God has sent Christ to be our representative to do what you and I could not do. You and I could not be uh, a perfect sacrifice. We could not be pure. We could not live in perfect obedience. So God thinks of us as doing what God or Christ has done. He goes on to write, When Jesus perfectly obeyed God for his whole life, God thought of us as obeying him also. For he says in Romans, by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. So Christ is the source of our righteousness. So when I stand before God and he says that I'm not guilty, are you and I, have we been perfect? No. We are found not guilty because Christ was found not guilty. You see, what it is, is you and I are almost like grabbing onto his coattails and walking in with him. And we are like part of him. Because God thought of us as being in Christ, he could also think of our sins as belonging to Christ. As we see, God made him, speaking of Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us. And the Lord, in Isaiah says, had laid on him the iniquity of us all. These sins were sins that we had not yet committed. But God knew about them in advance, and he thought of them as belonging to Christ. Thus it was right that Christ should die for our sins. For it says that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. But it was not just our sins that God thought of as belonging to Christ. 
It was we ourselves. When Christ died, God thought of us as having died. Our old self, it says, was crucified with him. As Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. One has died for all, therefore all have died. In the same way, God thought of us as being buried with Christ, raised with him, and taken up to heaven with him in glory. God, the Bible tells us, raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. When Christ returned to heaven, therefore all the blessings, Wayne Grumman writes, of salvation were earned for us. Not by us, but for us. God thought of these blessings as being rightfully ours, just as if we have earned them ourselves. Nevertheless, they were stored up in heaven, in God's mind, actually, and in Christ our representative, waiting to be applied to us. It would be in a simple way as any father who works hard and spends his life uh, earning wealth and gathering his wealth and working hard and earning and putting aside. And when he dies, his children get that inheritance. It's not that they earned it. It's not that they did anything to get it. But because of their relationship with their father, they receive it. It's counted as theirs. Paul depicts these truths of our union with Christ as the God counts us righteous because of what Christ did for us with the word baptized in verse 27 when he writes, For as many as of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Baptism is a picture of dying to the old self while being raised to a new life. It depicts our union with Christ. Turn to Romans chapter 6. You see, this is a truth that you and I need to understand. How is it that I can be counted as an offspring of Abraham? What is it about my faith that allows me to receive those blessings? Well, it's because of our union with Christ. In Romans chapter 6, look at verse 3. As we explore what it means, he says, Do you not know that all of us, speaking of those who profess Christ, those of us that claim Christ, have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized in his death. Remember, baptism is a word that means immersion. It means that we've been immersed in him, fully swallowed up whole. We were buried, therefore, with him, in verse 4, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, that's what communion with Christ does. It gives me a new lease in life. Verse 5. For if we have been, what? United with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. In Colossians 2.12, he says very much the same thing when he writes, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. See, the Bible says that we reunite in Christ in the fact that we were baptized, we were immersed into Christ. When God sees Landon, when he sees Nicole, when he sees me, he doesn't see me in my sin. He sees his perfect son. 
and he counts what Jesus did as belonging to me. And I'm assuming he sees that in you too. I pray that it is. We certainly hope so and pray. But the great fact is, is that our union of Christ is not only a past work, but it's also designed to help us during our lives now. Rain Grumman continues to write that once we have been born and exist as real people in the world, our union with Christ can no longer be something that was just in God's mind. We also must be brought into an actual relationship with Christ through which the benefits of salvation can be applied to our lives by the Holy Spirit. The richness of this present life in Christ can be viewed from slightly different perspectives. The Bible tells us that we have died and been raised with Christ. We have a new life. He says we have a new life in Christ and that all of our actions can be done in Christ and that all Christians together are one body. And so the fact that you and I need to know is that you and I do not stand alone, empty, before a big, great God. You and I stand, so to speak, with a big brother. One who takes me and hides me behind him. And when he looks at me, he does not see my action and my thoughts and my sin and my weaknesses, but he sees Christ's perfect obedience. Amen? That's what it means to be united with Christ. And that ought to cause you and I to rejoice. For no longer do we need to go through the Mosaic Law and through circumcision to become children, but we're united because Christ did everything for me. Now that leads me to the last two points. First, we had to know what we needed to know, what we needed to believe. You and I need to know, to believe, to understand that we do not stand alone, but we're united with Christ. We stand before Him, we're justified because of what Christ did, not because of who we are. But then the next thing that you and I need to know is that what we need to be. What we need to be. And we find that in verse 28, where Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now verse 28 would have been a very big deal and probably a difficult barrier for the Jews to get over. They had been taught that they were the chosen people of God, and they were. And that only those that were naturally born Jewish or converted to the Jewish faith who observed circumcision and the Mosaic law were children of God. And only by that could they receive the blessings. There were times in Scripture that they referred to the Gentiles as dogs and heathens. And many of you can remember reading in the Gospels where the Jews would, would go so many miles out of their way never to have any dealings with the Samaritans who they considered as half-breeds. They hated the Hellenistic Jews who made peace with the Romans. They hated any type of compromise with anyone who was not of their clan and their tribes. They even refused to eat and fellowship with others. This was married into the Jewish faith, and when they became saved, they still struggled with many of these same things. Yet here Paul is writing that since the entrance into the family of Abraham is through adoption, there is no longer any distinction between race and social and economic and gender 
roles and biases. What he's teaching here and what we need to understand is that he's teaching the equality of all believers in Christ. There's no difference between people. There's not Jew and Gentile. There's not rich and poor. There's not male and female. Now, he's not blurring the distinctions and those biblical roles and things that play its part. But what he's saying is that the Christians ought to be united together. In a family, there's no distinction. We all belong. By the way, let me just ask this question. Does anyone here have ever adopted or know families that have adopted children from different races, countries? Yeah, what, what sweet, sweet families. And if you were going to those families, we have several, and they have their own children and they have children from different races. Could you tell the difference of any love or the way they respect them? Not at all. Why? Because they're all family. It doesn't matter where they were born, who their natural mother and dad, uh, or mommy and daddy is. They just all love each other. They hold the same name. They hold things together. And let me tell you, that's what you and I need to be here this morning. We get the opportunity to be heaven today. For we too have different races and different social economic groups here and different gender roles. But in Christ's eyes, we are united. And as we come together, there should be no difference between who we are. Rich and poor are not separated. The people of different ethnic boundaries are not separated. We are together. We are to be united in our mind and in our spirit. That's what Christians are to be. The Bible says that there's one Lord, one baptism, one spirit. Be of one mind. That's what the body of Christ should be like. Earlier we read where Paul wrote to the church of Ephesus that you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God. You and I today are not just doing some type of thing. We're today as a family doing family work. Earlier, Paul had criticized Peter for refusing to eat with the Gentiles. Paul says that a family eats and fellowships with together. This would have been scandalous to the Jewish mind. And to the Judaizers, they're trying to tear down the gospel. Why? Because it's saying that we're all the same. And their bigotry and their pride and their bias, they could not accept that. Let me tell you here, the church of God should not be marked by racial, social, economic classes and cliques. Because unfortunately, here in America, a very sad chapter of Christianity is marked by those very same things. And it should not be so. Now, we are a perfect church? No, not by any means. You and I call come as individuals. We all have different backgrounds. We all come from different things. And sometimes it's easy to expect people to be like us. But not in the family of God. There are some of you here that have been a Christian for a long time and you're just going strong and you never have a care in the world. Let me tell you, there's other people that are struggling with their Christianity. 
struggling with doubts. Maybe they're coming from uh, some type of addiction. Maybe they're coming from some type of abuse. Maybe they're coming from some type of thing. And yet for them to drag themselves in, they're dealing with so much problems inside themselves, they don't even feel like they can be loved. That's when you and I reach out. Let us never look down on any. But let us, like the family of God, reach out and love those, for that's what we are. You and I will stand united in heaven together with one voice proclaiming the one God. So what is it that we need to be? We need to be united together as a family. And I pray that we as Old Trudilla Bible Church, that we do the hard work of doing that. One way that you can do that is by inviting people to your house, by getting involved, by life sharing, by getting together, by sharing with each other. Let there not be classes and cliques in this church. There are going to be natural things of affinities. That's not wrong. If we were to get together and we were to say, let's go into a room and we were to break up in groups, there would be those who are going to be wanting to talk about Kobe coming back. There will be others that might want to talk about football. There are others who may want to talk about NASCAR. There will be others who just want to talk about music or cooking or who knows whatever it is. Those things are not wrong. What makes it wrong is when we refuse to let someone who doesn't want to talk about sowing, who says sowing is for the birds. There's room for us all. What do we need to be? We need to be united as a family. And we need to know that we're united in Christ. And let me end with this last one. Third observation is what we need to do. What is it that is we as Christians? What's our call to action? It's found in that last verse of verse 29. For he says, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. That's his conclusion. If you're united with Christ, you put on Christ, then you are Abraham's offsprings. And since you are Abraham's offsprings, you are heirs according to the promise. The conclusion that Paul is that we are Abraham's offsprings, and you and I receive those blessings. You and I are children of God. And being children of God brings certain responsibilities and expectations. A child bears the image of his father. He mimics his mannerisms and conducts. And as children of God, you and I are to imitate our father. It's not easy. but That's what we're called to do. Ephesians chapter 4. He tells us to put off your old self. That's what we as Christians are to do, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through its deceitful desires. And we're to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And we're to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What is it that you and I need to do? We need to put off. We need to renew and we need to put on. Scripture tells us in Colossians, put off the old self, with its practices, and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. I want to say very quickly, that's what you and I need to do. Just as you and I, when we come home from a dirty old day, what is it that we do? Do you put on just new clothes to go out for dinner? No. You take off your old clothes. You renew your mind. You wash up your body. Then you put on the new. So many of us are trying to go through life and just trying to put new clothes over the old. And you wonder why we stink. We wonder why we itch. We wonder why we're scabbing up and sick. No one wants to be around us. Because we're not 
being children of God, we're not doing what we're called to do. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 13, and I'll end here. My promise to you. It's what we need to know. It's we need to believe and know that we're united with Christ. It's not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done for us. We need to be, what we need to be is we need to be united as a family. And what is it that we need to do is we need to imitate our Father. Romans chapter 13, 11 through 14. Take this as your challenge, as the word of the King to you to go out and do. When he says, besides this you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. What do you need to know? That you're united with Christ. That calls you to be united as a family. And it calls you to do what your Father has called you to do. Father, I thank you for this great doctrine. I pray now that as we read Scripture, that you would illuminate our hearts and minds and see the ways in which we are in Christ, that you are with us. Lord, I thank you for your salvation that comes not by being naturally born in a certain race, not by converting to some type of works-oriented religion, but Lord, in the fact of what Christ has done on my behalf. And I thank you, Lord, for counting me righteous because what Jesus has done. Lord, help us to know the gospel, help us to be the gospel, and help us to do the gospel. And in that way, we defend it from the counterfeits that seek to distort and destroy. Strengthen us for that this morning. We pray in the name of your Son. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.